It's around midnight, June 4th, 1896. In a dank shed behind a Detroit row house, a skinny man makes the final adjustments on a machine he's been crafting out of bicycle parts, wood, and nuts and bolts from the hardware store. He's 32 years old, short on money and big on dreams. His name is Henry Ford, and he calls his invention a quadricycle. It's basically a bench mounted on four bicycle wheels with a little motor behind the bench that will generate the power equivalent of four horses. The quadricycle has taken him six years to build, and tonight he'll road test it. Henry wheels his vehicle out of the shed that smells of gasoline and oil and into the rain. His wife, Clara, waits patiently, holding an umbrella over her and their two-year-old child, Edsel. Henry sets the choke, and the flywheel starts spinning. The engine sputters and roars to life. Here I go. Henry, be careful. Whoever got anywhere by being careful? <laughs> he waves to Clara as he begins his drive through the dark streets of Detroit, his quadricycle making popping sounds. The vehicle has two driving speeds, no reverse, no brakes, and poor steering ability. A doorbell button serves as a horn. As he picks up speed, he feels the wind blowing through his hair. He has no idea that the age of coal and steam is ending and that he'll lead a revolution in transportation. That sound of the four-horsepower motor, why, that's the sound of a new machine age. As he rolls by, people wave, Here comes that crazy Henry Ford. Ford mutters to himself, Yes, crazy. Crazy like a fox. Such a modest, whimsical beginning of the motor age. Within two decades, however, Henry Ford and the automobile would literally redesign the landscape of America. But it wouldn't happen without a war, both literally and figuratively. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL and speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world, with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars.
we're beginning a new four-part series titled Ford versus Chevrolet. This is episode one, Tin Lizzie Becomes Roadkill. Ford and Chevrolet first locked horns as the nation's two most popular car brands nearly a century ago. In those early years, cars would change the way we lived, how and where we worked, the way we ate, shopped, and listened to music. Two powerhouses above all others made that happen in America, Ford and Chevrolet. Today, the auto industry grosses over a trillion dollars annually, and while they face much more international competition, Ford and Chevrolet remain among the world's leading car brands. But in the early days of the auto industry, the future auto barons are intrigued by this new machine invented in Germany about 15 years ago called the automobile. They know there's potential. They just haven't figured out how to tap it. The year is 1900 at Detroit's legendary Pontchartrain Hotel Bar, where a boisterous group of men are ordering drinks. Now, these men are not your typical barflies. No, they're free-thinking engineers obsessed with the automobile. On this particular night, David Dunbar Buick, Ransom Olds, and the Dodge Brothers have hauled pieces of an engine into the center of the barroom. Ransom Olds looks down at the array of parts. They know they're looking at the future, but they just can't quite work out how in their heads. Some think steam will power automobiles. Others think autos will fail and that horses will transport us all around. I say the internal combustion engine will make the future for mankind. David Buick nods. <laughs> There's no question. So do the Dodge brothers, John and Horace. Glasses are raised. Down the hatch. At this point, these men, whose names now glint from the back fenders of automobiles around the world, are drinking buddies and not yet cutthroat competitors. They regard Henry Ford as just another competitor, a would-be inventor chasing the same dream. But soon, their opinion of Crazy Henry would change. Henry Ford sells his original four-horsepower quadricycle for $200 and sets about building his second car. For seven years, he experiments. In 1903, he persuades 11 investors to put up $150,000, and the Ford Motor Company is born. At the time, there are fewer than 8,000 cars in the U.S., and the most successful of the auto companies is Oldsmobile, which, like Henry Ford's, is based in Detroit. Ford rents a small, single-story factory space on Mack Avenue, in 1903, he sells his first Ford-branded car to a Chicago dentist for $850. What makes Ford different from the hundreds of other fledgling automakers experimenting all over the country? His genius is not in the car itself. No, actually, it's in the factory that can produce it. As a boy, he'd tinkered with watches. Now in his 40s, Ford imagines a production line that functions with all the precision of a timepiece he moves into a bigger factory space, then another. And each time, he finds ways to whittle minutes and seconds off the production time, making the car faster for less money and easier to fix when it breaks. 
Ultimately, he creates an integrated moving assembly line. He enthusiastically describes its revolutionary efficiency to a visitor. The man who places a part does not fasten it. The man who puts a bolt does not put on the nut. The man who puts on the nut does not tighten it. Every piece of work in the shop moves. It may move on hooks or overhead chains. It may travel on a moving platform or it may go by gravity. But it moves. And it's about to move a whole lot faster. It is October 1st, 1908. Henry Ford's new factory is on Piquette Avenue in Detroit. Chilly autumn winds rip down the avenue as Henry Ford stands watching a new Ford model roll off the assembly line. An excited crowd gathers to see this new Ford car. This is the first Model T, the first car produced cheaply enough to make it affordable to the general population. Soon, it would earn its nickname, the Tin Lizzie. The crowd roars as a mechanic sparks up the four-cylinder engine. People who see it for the first time are mesmerized. It flies by at 45 miles per hour, and the Model T can handle a wide range of terrain. It's used as a taxi, a fire engine, an ambulance, and in a pinch, a bank robber's getaway car. Roving church ministers love its ability to traverse ruddy dirt roads as they go from one town to the next. Meanwhile, Ford begins cranking out these cars, 19,000 of them in 1910. A year later, nearly double that. Within two years, 78,000 cars. This signals a big change in fortunes for Henry Ford and for his wife, Clara, but it takes a while to sink in. One day, Henry Ford sees Clara walking purposefully towards him with a piece of paper flapping in her hand. Something is obviously on her mind. Henry? Henry, what is this? She hands him a crinkled up piece of paper. He unfolds it and looks down. Clara is waiting for an explanation, her eyebrows raised. Henry, that's a $75,000 check. I found it wrinkled up in your pocket like some kind of lint ball. Um, I forgot I put it there. You, you forgot $75,000? Only 15 years earlier, Henry Ford was a broken, obscure tinkerer. Now, he is the richest and most famous man in the world. Ford's good fortune is about to be good news for the average working man, too. That's because Ford's dream isn't just big, it's epic. And to make it come true, he's going to need workers. Lots of them. It's January 15th, 1914. Big news, get your paper. Ford offers auto workers $5 a day. Yeah, that's right. $5 a day. Steel workers make around $1.75 for a nine-hour day. The promise of a $5 day is irresistible. Thousands of Americans from all over the country pack up and head for Detroit. They want to work, and they want to make enough money to buy a Model T. And many make that dream come true. As they do, one thing becomes crystal clear. Ford is going to need a bigger factory. 
It's 1920, and a crowd is gathering inside the belly of a new Ford factory called the Rouge. And it is huge. It's a factory so big, well, it's like something out of science fiction. Machines are everywhere. But it is totally silent. This is a crowning moment for the Ford family. Henry stands with his only son, 26-year-old Edsel, who's holding his son, three-year-old Henry Ford II. Young Henry is too young to understand that someday he will command all of this. The toddler is handed a lit match and he lights the coke in a furnace. Almost instantly, the gigantic machines roar to life, the clatter and thunder filling the air. The factory sits on the Rouge River in Dearborn, Michigan. It has its own docks and a hundred miles of interior railroad. It even has its own electricity plant, enough to light up Chicago (laughs) and a steel mill. At one end, railroad cars haul raw ingredients like rubber, sand, and iron ore, and Model T's roll out the other side. Eventually, this plant will employ 100,000 workers. Henry Ford appears to be an unstoppable force. But in fact, the year the Rouge opens, Wall Street is growing excited about a different car company. Those in the know see something coming down the road, a Detroit car brand that's about to challenge Henry Ford for the first time. The man behind that challenge is about to profoundly change how corporations are run. That may not sound revolutionary right now, but its impact will rival what Ford accomplished with the assembly line. November 11th, 1920. Two men sit across from each other in a smoke-filled restaurant in Detroit. Alfred Sloan, the vice president of the second largest car company in Detroit, General Motors, is sitting on one side. On the other sits Sloan's boss, Billy Durant, the larger-than-life chief executive of General Motors. Sloan studied engineering at MIT, and he's not happy with what he's seeing at GM. Durant never finished high school, but he's always ready with a joke and is rarely seen without a cigar smoldering between his fingers. He's gotten rich by bringing together a group of car brands under one parent corporation, naming the company General Motors in 1908. Sloan's worried about GM's direction. In fact, it's a mess. So he asks Durant about his plan. The whole U.S. economy is in a slump. The automobile market has nearly vanished, and so has our income. Management has let things spin out of control. When Durant doesn't respond, Sloan is pointedly blunt. So, what are you going to do about it? Durant butters his bread quietly. Fact is, he's run out of answers. Well? Durant looks up. Nothing. That's a wrong answer. Bankers are called in to help with a loan. The board is unhappy, and Durant is forced to resign. At that time, it is the biggest corporate coup ever, and it sets the stage for the rise of Alfred Sloan and his new style of management. Sloan 
will soon become the father of the modern corporation and one of the most important business figures of the 20th century. Sloan devises new corporate reporting structures, marketing committees, professional accounting divisions, and most importantly, a new strategy for GM, what he calls a car for every purse and purpose. He creates a tiered lineup of brands, each aimed at a different kind of car buyer. The Chevrolet would cover the low end of the market, ascending to Pontiac, then Oldsmobile, Buick, and the standard of luxury, the Cadillac. Chevrolet would be the flagship. But to run it, Sloan badly needs a production genius. It turns out that Henry Ford has one. His name is William Knudsen. He's a huge man with a thick Danish accent and a mustache to rival Joseph Stalin's. But Knudsen makes one fatal mistake. He suggests to Henry Ford that maybe, maybe it's time to replace the Model T. That idea cost Knudsen his job. But firing Knudsen will cost Ford far, far more. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. In 1922, Sloan invites Knudsen to his office. Knudsen looks around. It's spacious, nicely appointed. It doesn't look like a car guy's office. This could be a banker's office or a lawyer's. Sloan begins the conversation. I don't know if you recall, but I had some business with you at Ford's some time ago. I remember you, Mr. Sloan. Knudsen, we could use your expertise at GM. Well, I'm interested, sir. I have one job in mind for you. I want you to make Chevrolet the best car in the world. Soon after taking charge of Chevrolet, Dudson attends a get-together of 2,000 Chevy dealers at a restaurant in Chicago. It's a high-spirited affair, and the main attraction tonight is Knudsen. Knudsen's size is deceiving. Though he's large, he's a shy man, afraid of public speaking. And that's exactly what's expected of him now. A colleague leans toward him. 
Mr. Knudsen, you're the boss, so you have to say something to these people. What in hell will I say? Knudsen's colleague introduces his new boss of the Chevrolet division. He nervously steps up and leans forward to speak into the microphone. I want Van for Van. Then he abruptly returns to his seat. People look at each other puzzled over what was just said. What was that? Van for Van? What? It sounds like nonsense. But in fact, it makes a whole lot of sense. Knudsen wants one Chevrolet sold for every Ford sold. Van for Van. In three words, he nails it. That's the goal. With Knudsen's production genius in the factory and Sloan's brilliance in the boardroom, GM's flagship Chevrolet begins to close in on Ford. The public senses a heavyweight corporate battle shaping up. The nation's dailies follow the biggest business story of the 1920s as if it were a prize fight. Headlines scream, a war looms between Ford and Chevrolet. Ford and Chevy battle for supremacy. In 1924, two out of every three autos purchased in America are Model Ts. But just two years later, Ford is reeling. Chevy is outselling Ford two to one. Meanwhile, there is a cold wind blowing across the global economy. The question is, even if Ford does suddenly wake up, can he stage a comeback? By the roaring 1920s, motor cars are changing the way people shop, dress, vacation, farm, worship, and court the opposite sex. And in some cases, where they have sex. They allow people to leave crowded cities for the suburbs where they can buy larger homes with lush lawns. A new middle class is growing. Industries everywhere adapt Detroit's production line approach to everything, from slaughterhouses to gun factories to mass-produced food. In the process, they create fabulous new fortunes. And then suddenly, the bottom falls out. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. It's October 1929. The stock market crash in 1929 creates economic chaos. The car industry feels the pain. Numerous manufacturers would not survive. Among the auto companies that fail are Stutz, Pierce Arrow, Marmon, Duesenberg, Auburn. The list goes on. But General Motors and its flagship Chevrolet is one of the only companies in America to remain profitable every year throughout the Great Depression. Why? Well, because Alfred Sloan successfully caters to Americans' desires for cheap Chevrolets. And here is how Sloan does it. First, he asks GM to create an art and color section. The new Chevys are still relatively cheap, but now they're even more eye-catching, too. The 1932 Series BA Confederate sports chrome-plated headlights and the all-new 1937 Chevrolet Master 
has a grill like a Fu Manchu mustache and a long nose, suggesting plenty of power under that hood. These cars have pizzazz and attitude. By contrast, people see the Fords more like an appliance. Second, starting in 1928 and even through the Depression, Sloan changes the look of a car model every year. This constant upgrading would later become known as planned obsolescence. The strategy induces customers to buy new Chevrolets, even though their current Chevys may still have lots of life left. Buyers are always asking, what will those guys at Chevy do next? Now, if you are to get in a Chevrolet and drive out of Detroit just a few miles into neighboring Dearborn, you would find a different situation. Ford does launch the Model A to great fanfare before the Depression, but sales suffer in the 1930s. Ford has no annual model changes. In fact, for much of its lifetime, the Model T didn't even come in any color except black. It's as if the color expresses Henry Ford's mood. He's growing strange and disenchanted. He feuds publicly with the new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When FDR launches his National Recovery Act, the NRA, which dictates rules for businesses to function during the Depression, Ford publicly denounces the program. What right does the president have to tell me how to run my business? The government doesn't even know how to run its own business. And of those affected by the Depression? Well, Ford's not exactly sympathetic. Let him fail. Let everybody fail. I made my fortune when I had nothing to start with by myself and buy my own ideas. Let other people do the same. In fact, Ford doesn't seem to give a hoot about much, even the competition. I don't care how many cars Chevrolet sold last year. I don't know how many they're selling this year. I don't know how many they may sell next year. And frankly, I don't care. Ford is not standing still. He has added the Mercury and Lincoln, which earns the company a reputation for luxury and high design. But by the late 1930s, Ford falls to third place behind General Motors and Chrysler. And Henry Ford is about to go head-to-head with a power he helped create, his massive workforce. And in the Great Depression era, workers are hungry and scared. It's May 26, 1937. Some auto union leaders are standing outside Ford's massive Rouge factory, handing out union literature to workers. They know that there is likely to be violence today. They were warned, but they came out anyway. By this time in 1937, unions have become the biggest story in Detroit. The rise of auto unions put unprecedented power in the hands of workers who were desperate to make gains with big industrialists like Henry Ford. During the depths of the Depression, a raise of a mere penny an hour would go a long way. Both General Motors and Chrysler signed deals with the unions, but not Henry Ford. He creates what he calls the service department, and it is nothing less than the nation's 
largest private police force manned by thugs and gangsters. Its job is to use the threat of violence to keep unions out of Ford's factories. But violence is in the air. On the morning of May 26, 1937, Ford's servicemen approach Walter Ruther as he and union buddies are trying to win over auto workers. The Ford thugs attack. Suddenly, fists are flying, guts are stomped, noses broken. Within days, pictures of brutalized workers appear in magazines all over the country. Americans are shocked. The violence seems to erase hope for the utopian dream that Henry Ford once stood for just 10 years earlier. The attempt to end the sit-down strike in tear gas and blood as if it were a kind of 13th century peasants' revolt failed. There were casualties. By 1937, Ford's net profits sink to under $3 million. That same year, the Chevy brand of General Motors alone profits $55.7 million. Americans wonder, has Henry Ford run out of gas? The answer is drowned out by the sounds of war that seem to be drawing closer by the day. It's a September day in 1938. Big Bill Knudsen stands aboard the steamship Bremen, sailing for Europe. He's made Chevrolet king of American cars and has recently been named president of GM, the world's largest corporation. Knudsen is second only to chairman of the board, Alfred Sloan. He's traveling to check on GM's brands in Europe. A woman approaches Knudsen. Mr. Knudsen, do you think there's going to be war? No, ma'am, I do not. But, but the steward says there's, there is going to be war. When Knudsen reaches the continent, he finds people are living in terror of a Nazi attack. In London, gas masks are being handed out. In Paris, sirens from air raid drills howl at night. This haunts Knudsen for more reasons than he can count. But throbbing most persistently in his head is the knowledge that General Motors owns Opel, the largest car brand in Nazi Germany. And Hitler is leaning on Opel for its rearmament and modernization plan. Ford also owns a large factory in Germany. Before Hitler's evil ambitions became clear to the world, both companies agreed to make trucks for Hitler's government out of their German factories. Now, General Motors and Ford stand to lose everything in Germany. On September 1st, 1939, Hitler invades Poland, sending fleets of dive bombers to rip apart Warsaw. Executives at Ford and at General Motors lose contact with their German factories. World War II has begun. On the next episode of Ford vs. Chevrolet, just as the American auto industry has revolutionized the daily lives of millions of Americans, it will now be called upon to revolutionize the way soldiers fight and kill. Soon, crosstown rivals Ford and Chevrolet 
will partner to destroy Imperial Japan and the Third Reich. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've been listening to, it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. And by the way, don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. A.J. Bame wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor, produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hey, I'm Mike Corey, the host of Wondery's show, Against the Odds. In our next season, I'm telling an amazing true story about American sailors who wrecked their ship off the coast of Africa in 1815. They're captured by a nomadic tribe. To escape, they will need to cross the largest hot desert in the world to reach civilization. They will battle against blistering heat, inhumane conditions, hunger, and thirst. Their heroic fight to get home will have a much greater impact than just on their own lives. It will influence a future president and change the course of American history in ways that are still felt today. This is the true story of the men who made it, and it's one that you don't want to miss. Subscribe to Against the Odds on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now.